and welcome to the Urban Talk podcast, where we talk all things urban, demystify development, and break down the barriers between the development sector and local communities. I'm your host, Belinda Barnett. Today, I'm talking with Dean Boone, director and founder of the landscape architecture firm, Distinctive Living Design. Welcome, Dean. Thank you, Belinda. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the discipline of landscape architecture and the role that it plays in making our built environment and our natural environments more resilient, healthier, livable and sustainable. We first met when we were working down in Menangle on the Mount Torres project. And I've got to say that what struck me really about working with you um, was your underlying passion for landscape-led design and how your work respects and builds on the cultural identity of place. Can you tell me a little bit about the ethos um, that you bring to your work at Distinctive Living Design and the role that you play in your projects? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, So I'm director of Distinctive Living Design and it's a multidisciplinary firm, um, but it is a landscape-led firm. And there is an expression when I was studying, it's called genus loci, which is the sense of place. And I think that's what landscape architecture has the ability to capture or the ability to define. And landscape architecture is very much about creating a sense of place. So I always start with looking at what's there. And it's not just the natural landscape, but it can also be the history. And I think landscape architects should also be storytellers. Um, it's a very diverse discipline. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit. But um, yeah, it's, it's really my approach is to look at the space, understand it and respect it before we decide what we're going to do and, and try to encourage the client or the developer to actually embrace that. I'm not sure if you, um, I guess, have ever Googled landscape architect. You most probably haven't because you are one. But if you ever have Googled the term landscape architect, you'll know that you get very, very many uh, different definitions. Based on your career experience to date, how would you define what it means to be a landscape architect? You've touched on being a storyteller. What else does it mean to you to be a landscape architect? It's, that's a very big question in, in many ways. It's the, the, the discipline of landscape architecture is really broad. So you can, um, it's almost like being a doctor where you can come in as a GP and then you can go off in a whole bunch of different directions. We work as public art designers. We work in greenfield development sites, uh, residential education, hospital sort of sector. But then you can also be working on a residential level. But at, at its core, you're working with the land. And you can be a very, a real sort of structured based landscape architect or a real green based landscape architect. And you could be doing mining rehabilitation sites. So there's a really broad, broad scale, but it's almost like everything outside the door is landscape architecture. Okay. I like that. Hmm. I just made that up. (laughs) (laughs) You better put it on Google. (laughs) (laughs) How does it differ then? From being a horticulturalist, do you get upset if somebody says to you, oh, you're, you're a horticulturalist then? No, well, I am actually also a horticulturalist. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really interesting thing. When I, when I first went into study, I studied landscape design and horticulture and then moved into landscape architecture. And it stunned me that a lot of landscape architects have no formal training in plants. Um, and it's such a big field of study because you need to know hydrology and engineering and um, structure and there's a whole discipline just in that that landscape architecture generally leaves out plants 
it, which is uh, would shock a lot of people that it's a hang on a sec don't landscape architects work with plants and and landscape so it's it's a really interesting sort of conundrum i guess and we have um staff that are both horticulturalists and landscape architects and others that have no knowledge in it at all and you have to really sort of train them up and skill them up. And it's almost a perception of the, the courses that you do that you'll learn that later. And, and I think that's, that's an area that, that can be improved with landscape architecture. Yeah, maybe it's sort of, I, I don't know whether to introduce it into the university training a little bit more. Yeah, it's a, I've got a colleague in France and she is um, what's called a, a landscape hydrologist. And so she's really almost like a stormwater engineer and a landscape architecture that works with the natural environment. And they have a very different approach that she really has to understand the plants and the, the hydrology and how water moves across the site and then also understand structure. So I, I, it's, it's a really interesting sort of question and it's, it's a, a problem that I think a lot of landscape architects are challenged with. And there's, there was quite a famous um, Australian landscape architect who sort of famously said, I hate plants and, ju and just did... <laughs> really detailed hardscape construction design. So it's, yeah, there's, there's something in it for everyone, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because you often just, um, I guess, associate green with the profession of landscape architecture, but just touching on what you've just said, it obviously extends far further than that. The design of, I guess, public places isn't always about creating green space. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you think about you know, areas in and around Sydney and the, you know, the foreshore, it can be a lot of hardscape structure that is going into the built environment. And sometimes the angle of sustainability for landscape architecture gets lost in that it's, there's all these other things that have to happen first and then we put in plants. So what we really try to advocate is to say, we need to think you know, from a sustainability point of view, let's think about the landscape in terms of what we're putting in, in terms of shade and um, green spaces and deep soil, and then maybe work back from there rather than leave that as the thing that the landscape architect have to fix up Later yeah, at on. the end. I mean, you'd be across this, but the New South Wales Office of the Government Architect has been developing a framework to support the, I guess, the viable and resilient sort of green infrastructure um, expanding into our cities and also the preservation of the natural um, environment and, I guess, local ecological habitats. And we've got targets being set for green canopies or tree canopies for projects. And we've also got the aspiration I guess, across Sydney to deliver a green grid to create, you know, a viable regional open space network. From where you sit as a landscape architect, is the discipline of landscape architecture getting enough attention by developers of new projects and urban policymakers? Or is it still being a little bit sort of sidelined as an afterthought? I would say it's in transition. Um, I sit on some design review panels uh, and in, in that space, you have an architect, an urban designer and a landscape architect and their voice is given equal weight and e equal kudos. I definitely see um, some development organizations and developers that perhaps don't prioritize landscape architecture and see it as the thing that we do at the end. But the reality is with climate change and global warming, we need to actually increase our canopy cover, our green spaces. And so the, the focus is starting to shift. And you and I worked on that project um, at Mount Taurus and it was landscape led. 
And we're seeing more and more of that, that let's not bring the landscape architects in at the end once we've decided what we're doing. Let's actually engage them in the process from day one and actually let their their sort of considerations and vision help drive alongside the urban designers, alongside the architects and the planners and the civil engineers. Because if we leave it till the end, we really haven't given it the opportunity to reach its full potential. No, it's, it's good then that you say that your role is actually changing then. In, in projects. Yeah. So this is my 27th year in landscape architecture. And at the start, 100%, it was just, uh, we'll call you when we need you kind of thing. And to, to advocate for sustainability, you know, 27 years ago was actually a really hard sort of process. And to advocate the importance of, um, it's great if you've got a beautiful building, but if you step outside and there isn't a great sense of character, then, um, then you're missing half the sort of the ingredients that actually sells, you know, from a commercial point of view, if, you know, sells the space, sells the desire to be there. And that realization I've seen sort of change and grow. Um, so it is actually quite a welcome change, but I think there's still a, a way to go. It's, it's, it's getting there. So that sort of much really leads quite well into my, I guess, my next sort of series of questions. And it's, a, I guess it's about understanding how you actually come to a multidisciplinary team um, with a new development project. Does the architect go and design the space? Or as you're saying, are you now coming into the project straight up front and saying to the, the architect, well, here are some landscape parameters that you need to consider on this particular site before you actually start designing? Are you involved right up front like that? Yes. For, the, for successful projects, that is the, the key ingredients, the client, the architect, and then the other members of the consultancy team. That if, they, if you see it as genuinely collaborative, then you actually get a much better result because there are, a landscape architect's role can sometimes be to solve problems that have been created by others. And to make it look good, mm. and that's that's really starting on the back foot. Um, so yeah, definitely. And I'm referencing some projects where we weren't engaged by the architect, and and they created problems that were almost unsolvable on site, and had to then go back and redesign. And to me, that's just a really inefficient approach. Mm. But it's also not a holistic approach. And I think um, you know, development itself is now not just a, a thing that the planners do, or it's not just a thing that um, the architect does. It's actually, there's so many layers to it that should be considered. Um, and as we move more and more towards, you know, sustainable future, it's just, it's so vital to get all these ingredients right. And, you know, urban design's included in that, um, you know, engineering can actually be quite dynamic if it's given the opportunity. What do you need from a client to be able to deliver high quality landscape outcomes? Trust is a big one. I would definitely say trust is a big one. Openness to, to a vision um, and, and openness to explore that, I think, because there are obviously um, commercial impacts and, and the cost associated with those decisions. But I've always been an advocate for a better quality development that perhaps has, um, you know, if you think about apartment designs, you may not, you want to get 200 apartments, you know, some massive number. But you know, 150 apartments that are of a much better quality are going to sell well and, and have a, a, an ongoing sort of future, better quality finishes, less maintenance. It's almost like an approach that says, if you just want to get in and get out, then that's not someone we would work with. Um, but someone who's actually de delivering a really high quality product 
perhaps with less yield. I, I see it as actually when it goes to market, it actually attracts more dollars anyway. So why not actually do things well? You know, do it well right once rather than having to go back and redo mm. it. We're getting into development here now. I know we are. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what I mean, I, I guess trust is one of the things. What are some of the other challenges that you face in being able to bring, I guess, your vision? your landscape vision to life when you're working on a project? Um, I, would, I would honestly say, and it might surprise people, but um, council can sometimes be problematic in that approach. And it's, there's, there's a lot of different layers within a council. And I've seen projects where we had one project was a greenfield site. We did big studies. Um, we looked at the idea of preservation of landscape for um, Floral pollinators, so they could move from groups of trees to groups of trees. And then we worked on the master plan of the estate, and those spaces became public parks. But when it came down to the actual DA for the park, we had the maintenance sort of review coming from council saying we can mow that park three minutes faster and therefore be on budget if we cut down all those trees. And the trees went. Oh my goodness. And it was it was shocking because it was part of a protected endangered community and I just I remember just thinking I cannot believe that we've worked on this site for probably 10 years and now it's come down to how quick it is to mow the park and and that's a lack of um there's a lack of chain of communication sometimes in council that that delivers that and and I've seen policies where you know uh, urban heat sink is a really big thing and let's get shade in but then having feedback like, oh, can we put trees in the streetscape that don't drop leaves because they choke up our gutters? And it was like, well, no, nature should come first and mm. all trees drop leaves. And so then they'd put in really small upright trees where you had the space for big canopies and then wonder why they had this problem with urban heat sink. And so it's, yeah, it's almost like there's an education process happening across the board. So it's not just, you know, and, and developers can get a bad name and that's often you know, a public perception that they're there to get in and get out. But we've worked with amazing developers that have really long-term visions that are really trying to challenge um, you know, the planning controls, you know, why can't we do better? Let's, let's not just, you know, meet this, but let's go above and beyond. I really do think a lot of the way that, you know, that planning controls are structured just have a lot to answer for really being sort of taking away from that ability to achieve a holistic vision on a site and just sort of decompartmentalizing, you know, projects down to a series of regulations that have to be complied with, you know, what, what, what is the deep soil component? What is the overall sort of provision of open space rather than really, yes, standing back and looking at a development as a whole? Yeah, and I, I've seen us work uh, hand in hand with urban designers and that's where you know, that numeric compliance is one thing, but actually the quality of that compliance mm. is another. And I sit on design review panels, but also design excellence panels. And they're quite interesting because they call for the desire to go above and beyond for sustainability. And it doesn't actually say what that means, which can be challenging. Um, but if you think of like a, a site that has a 7% deep soil requirement, we want to see more than the 7%, mm. but also the quality of the space and how that's used. And it's, it, it's not just necessarily a, oh, well, three meters in from the boundary, let's draw a line, bang, there you go. Let's actually think about how we do it and, and create spaces of great quality. And that's where you really start to get 
that notion of, well, the architect is working with the landscape architect and we have to think about services and engineer and the basement footprint. And it all starts to come together as a, as a roundtable discussion about what would be the best quality of outcomes. Referencing your own projects, what are some of the new innovations that you're trying to bring to the forefront? Oh, okay. Um, new innovations. Look, I, I would think an approach, I've sort of mentioned sustainability quite a bit, but I think it's we're, we're at a point where, and we've just had sort of you know, a big report coming out that just said, look, this is it. We need to, we've got less than 10 years. Um, and I'm, I'm a bit, big advocate for talking to developers and going, look, let's, let's do this really well, because there are small changes that you can make now that make a huge impact. Um, and a really simple one is car parks. They're not very exciting, but we have a habit of just putting in curb and gutter and asphalt all through and bang a couple of trees. And we've got our, again, our numerical compliance. Let's go for a, a lower car parking rate and the DCP controls actually call for a certain number, but you can challenge council on it. But let's also put in permeable paving and large scale trees. And you're creating the same outcome, but with a hugely different impact. Mm. And it's a long-term impact. And that should be, in my mind, it should be something that the developer is very proud of and uses as, as a tool for marketing to leverage the sale of that product or the, the tenancy or, or whatever it is that they're going for. So that's sort of one area that we see. And I, I think the other area would be that there's a lot of things to do with your know, technology within the public domain, you know, Wi-Fi that can also operate as a security camera that can also be a sensor detector. And, and even, you know, I've had discussions recently about AI technology and how that could be integrated into a public domain space. And that's a really interesting one that you start to then see the, the surfaces and planes of the public domain and also then the buildings around it that could be used for AI technology or for projections or for light installations. And that's a really interesting space that is, again, kind of another layer in landscape architecture that, mm. okay, now we've also got to be, you know, quasi experts in, in this field. So um, there's a lot that gets dumped onto the landscape architects that people maybe <laughs> don't realise. So. Some of the things I love with the um, the Menangle Mount Taurus project that you put forward was, I, I love the way you built into that a regional open space network. Yes. Yeah. Like and where you took the ge geographical feature of Mount Taurus and that just became the focus. And, you know, it's, it's never been really um, able to be publicly accessed before. And yet suddenly in that project, it became the central feature of this beautiful regional open space. And I, I think maybe part of my approach is I see a lot of people notice the problems and see as a negative, but I always think problem solution and, and see the opportunity. And I have always approached a project, not sort of just looking at my site, but looking at it holistically. And so that site, it was a greenfield development with a really sort of strong topographical change through the, the middle of the site it was also on the adjacent site that we have nothing to do, but we've got this opportunity to advocate to council to say, hey, here's an opportunity for you to dedicate this space, create this really meaningful open space and, and deliver on some of the things that you want to down the track. But why shouldn't we advocate for that and and promote that? Because it, it becomes the backdrop to the, the rest of the development and it becomes landscape and landscape natural features become iconic in kind of people's memory. And that's a big part about landscape architecture is you create memory. Yeah, absolutely. I guess another part of that project that I loved, I mean, paying tribute to the agricultural significance of Menangle, how you incorporated the community gardens 
again, within each of the residential precincts that you created and and they were all around a, a community garden to bring people together. Yeah, that was, and that was a, um, a layer coming from what I referenced earlier about looking at uh, local history. So that particular site has a really strong connection to our agricultural history and sort of, you know, since colonial time. And to lose that story or to lose that connection was one of the, the driving sort of forces behind that development. Mm-hmm. And to look at how we could create, you know, orchards within public spaces. And a, a sustainability initiative is to create community gardens for food production and it brings people together. So it's also a, a place making and character building. And then the other layer of that particular development was exploring urban agriculture and saying, well, okay, if we can transform a, a semi-degraded agricultural land into an urban development, how can we also integrate agriculture? So we actually, the net outcome is we increase agricultural production on this site, but also engage the community in it. So it's a very, and you're really starting to think about how people live, live and work and play and how they connect with the land. Yeah, I think they were fantastic outcomes. I'm not sure whether the existing community fully understood the depth of your plan and, and your vision. Um, certainly there's there's more engagement and consultation to go on that project, but yeah, it'd be nice for them to be able to, I, I guess, yeah, see it through your eyes. Yeah, and I, that's, that's a real challenge with community consultation. And I have always seen, there's one consistency I've always seen, and that is that people are afraid of change. And I really try to stand at the forefront of let's advocate for good quality change because there is there can be bad change and you know there's there's a great sort of track history of things that have gone wrong or architecture that's terrible and people think why was that ever built but it's often that thing of the things that don't go well or are negative always you hear about the most and yes. the things that are done really well you tend to not notice but enjoy so advocating for that and advocating for a vision for the future that it was inclusive and and meant that this community didn't lose its agricultural connection but yes the landscape is going to change um, and the surrounds are going to change doesn't mean it, it is a, a negative result as, as the end outcome. I know again through that project that you have a really strong interest and you're doing some great work with designing with country. Can you share with me, I guess, a little bit about where, where, where did that begin for you? Okay. Um, so designing with country is a new sort of vision and direction. And for me, I've always always seen that inclusiveness in, in all forms is so important. Multicultural diversity is what makes up Australia. And respect of the First Nations people, I, th- I think we've just had a terrible approach. And, and one of the things I sort of explain to people is, you know, for I think they can now document 60,000 years Indigenous Australians have been here and they've worked almost symbiotically with the landscape and and the landscape has actually evolved to work with them. So cultural burning practices is something that they have done for generations and for thousands of years and our landscape evolved to burn. And then when we've come in and we've degraded the sites, we have cut things down and we stopped burning and we saw in Sydney, you know, not that long ago, there was literally a ring of fire around Mm. Sydney because we weren't continuing these cultural burning practices. And I know the Australian Botanic Gardens are doing a trial right now on bringing that back in as a landscape management tool so that councils and organisations can actually understand how to do it. But at its core value, I think Indigenous Australians knew how to care for the land 
And to me, designing with country is not something just to to add on. And I think that's what a lot of developers are saying. It's like, oh, now we've got this other thing we have to do. I look at it as, um, and AILA, the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects, have put out a really good document about designing with country and what it means to landscape architects. You know, in essence, what it says is that sustainability and climate change needs to be addressed. Designing with country actually works hand in hand with that. And so if you approach development as a, as a, as a whole profession and as a whole um, industry, if you change your mindset and say, okay, let's think about design with country first, and we're thinking about how the water moves across the land. And designing with country or, or being on country with an Aboriginal elder is not just about the land you're walking on. It's what's underneath the ground. It's the trees. It's the sky. It's the way the, the breeze moves across the land. It's the, the water. And if you break that down into, you know, you're doing wind studies and you're doing hydrological engineering and digging up basements and, and all these sorts of things, if you actually take a mindset and says, let's look at how an Indigenous person looks at the site and they're looking at their history and their cultural connection um, to pay respects to that and not remove it, you can actually create a beautiful narrative to the story that then the architecture can respond, the de development can respond, but you will also hand in hand respond to sustainability. And it goes back to, we were talking about those calculations for deep soil zones mm. and it being just a a thing that we do. But if there was a really important sort of view line, perhaps from a site, and it might be an apartment building and it's in an area that's all zoned apartment buildings, but there's a particular view line that is culturally significant, you could design the architecture around to capture that. And it might mean that you're then changing the arrangement on site. And in some ways it's nuances and it's, it's slight tweaks, but it's also not putting technical compliance first, but almost creating a sensitive response first mm. and then layering that in. And the big thing with design with country is to do it up front, not at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you think consent authorities will deal with it? Uh, it's a really interesting question because I, so I have some members of my family that are Aboriginal and I work with the Aboriginal community quite closely. We mm. do a lot of public artwork that tells sort of stories and we consult with Aboriginal elders and we have found that there's a lot of people that aren't sure of the process that want to be respectful, but don't, don't know what to do. I think there's a fear. There's a fear. Yeah. Um, and I had this really interesting comment to me specifically to do with design with country that says, okay, we go through this process and we do our consultation and we bring it into our design. Who on council is then authorizing that this is done well? Is it an Aboriginal led review process? And the answer is at, at this stage, no. It's council sort of say, okay, you've done your design with country process, tick. But I don't think anyone knows how to, to give that tick other than to say you have done something. And fact checking is a really big one. We saw a project on a panel where uh, the developer came in and thought they were paying respect to the Aboriginal nation, but they had the wrong one. Oh, yeah. And it was like, well, that's not this. <laughs> that's not this. And it was only that we on panel knew that, that it didn't go forward. So I think there needs to be a bit more of a formal process. But I also think there's an opportunity for d developers to lead that and say, yes. okay, we're going to make this really meaningful and impactful because that is what's unique about Australia. And in all facets, I think the more that we pay respect to First Nations people, but embrace and learn about that culture and inform others, I think it makes everything a bit more sort of connected. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's a unique time, I guess, where we sit in the design professions to be able to actually, when governments is on the page with it, 
to really see how we do make it intrinsically follow through on a project. I mean, my fear is that it just becomes tokenistic. Yes. Like something else, dare I say, like community consultation has become a tick the box function on a DA checklist. Have you got your report for designing with country? Yes. Yeah. You know, yep. Okay, good. And as you say, there's, there just isn't that, that follow through. And yeah, it would, it would be great to be able to see the development sectors like really step up and to take the lead with this. And, and I think I've, I've seen uh, developers that are a bit scared of having to do it at all. And I will leave that to the end and see what we have to do. Yeah. But, um, you know, the project that we worked on and I had that landscape led approach actually started with a walk on country with the local Aboriginal elder and finding out the story and the meaning of the land before we even touched it. And I thought that was a really powerful, that was a powerful starting point that then allowed that information to resonate right through. Uh, and as you know, that, that master plan sort of overlays with an artwork that was mm. created to communicate that story. And you can literally underlay the artwork and see the master plan and see how they work together and and why we have, you know, meeting places in certain places and why we have preserved certain open spaces and allowed for development in other spaces. And it was really interesting in that process that, for instance, we had a creek line, a riparian corridor to rehabilitate, but it actually worked hand in hand with the on-country response and designing with country process. So I think if, if people embrace things and perhaps actually speak with landscape architects more about it, because I think that's where... I can see within the industry, that's where the focus is on educating who should actually lead mm. that is really important. Um, and there are some great firms that actually have some um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander landscape architects within them. And, and that's, a, that's another perspective. But there's, there's a lot of learning to go. There's a lot of people who don't realise that there are multiple nations within Australia and multiple languages. And just because you're speaking to that Aboriginal person doesn't mean they're speaking for all Aboriginal mm. people. And I think Aboriginal people are very understanding of that. And at the end of the day, it's about being included and listened to. And actually paying respect means we pay respect to the land itself. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, as if we stumble along the way, maybe we're a little bit clumsy at times with it. I, I think we've just got to suck it up and keep going with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even um, when I reference sort of public art and storytelling, I've always been an advocate to say, we need to talk about the past, the good, the bad, and the ugly mm. before we can move forward because it is part of all our inclusive history and it is part of what has gone before us. But if we hide away from it, then we miss all these great opportunities. But, but equally, there are so many good stories about Aboriginal culture and history that aren't being told. The Menangle site was, was a perfect example that a lot of people will know about the Sydney colony being saved because they discovered this herd of cattle and, and there's almost like this heroic moment of the, the European settler standing on the hill and finding the cattle. But the, the truth was that the local Aboriginal clan had seen the cattle. The Europeans got wind of it and then the Aboriginal people led them to the top of the hill and showed them where it was. So I think there's this great opportunity to kind of retell an accurate history as well about how helpful Aboriginal people were to helping Europeans. And I just think if you don't tell those stories, you're just missing such a great opportunity. And that particular site tells of the Indigenous history, but also the European history of that agricultural history that we talked about. And all those ingredients are then filtering down into a development. It's quite phenomenal. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think you did an amazing job of 
interweaving both and, sides and, of the equation. But that was also led by the client. Mm. The client said yeah, and didn't, didn't lead the, the design outcomes but gave us the ability to say, right, guys, I want all of you to go away and all of you to do this and then come back to us. Yeah. They trusted you. Yeah, yeah. That you yeah. had their trust. Yeah, and that's, that's a fantastic thing. And I do see that happening more and more. And I do see um, developers and organizations understanding that landscape actually, you know, from a product sort of outcome, really makes their product shine. Dean, for those listeners or for members of the development uh, community who would like to understand where you actually begin with designing on country, can you lead us through the process? that you go through? Yeah, no problems. It's actually a question that I get asked quite a lot. And, um, and developers and organizations, and we've worked with, for instance, Landcom, have, they'll, they'll come to us and say, can you put forward the process? Because it is one of those problems with designing with country that the process isn't highly sort of articulated in the documents. It expresses the desire, but doesn't necessarily express the process. And a lot of people are scared of it because it's about I want to be respectful, but I don't know what respectful is. Yeah. And there's often been a, a lot of changing of naming of First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Indigenous. What, what's the right words to use? And what I've, my experience has always been working with Aboriginal communities and elders and land council is to, to be respectful is first and foremost to ask a question and to not be afraid of asking that question. But when you go into wanting to connect with country and understand a process, it's understanding that the land council is the bureaucratic arm of the Indigenous community and they are there to represent and uphold certain outcomes and review certain things. But a member of the land council is not necessarily a member of the local community and the local nation or tribe. And the most important place to start is to connect with the elders and their Aboriginal elders, and you call them uncle or auntie. And I remember being in a project where I was referring to auntie this and auntie that, and someone said, oh, is that your actual auntie? And I was like, no, no, that's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a term of reference. And they have the, the authority to actually tell those stories and communicate it. And it's also really important to understand that you can't go and tell that story without permission. Right. And you should ask for permission to record or video because there is also a fairly strong sort of cultural belief across all of the Aboriginal community that if you, and you'll see it on, say, the ABC, it's, you know, it'll come as a warning to mm. say that you may see uh, an Aboriginal person in this broadcast of, of any sort. And that is if you see someone who has passed away, that they're somehow their soul is sort of taken away. It's, I'm paraphrasing, so don't, don't quote me on that exactly, but it's understanding the nuances of the culture. We did a project with a school and it was following on from Sorry Day. And the idea was to create this art trail with the rainbow serpent, which was the local story and creating all these great sort of spaces and plants and a whole bunch of different things. But what was most important was to actually have permission to do that and then to engage the Aboriginal elders in that process. And if the Aboriginal elder then imparts that, that knowledge and wisdom, that you then don't just go away and use it, but you actually continue the communication with them engage them in the process. And that way, then they also are able to communicate it to the rest of the local Aboriginal community about what's happening. And it can be really sort of simple things about the preservation of a space, because this is where we used to gather. And those trees are really important because of, or, you know, there, there are sacred things and scar trees. And often um, you'll have 
Ahip land, which is it's had Aboriginal heritage on it, and there's flint or there's mm. certain significance on the land, but that's also a very bureaucratic sort of review of the site as opposed to the spiritual and cultural connection. So the process is really to ask the elders first, then you may engage with the community in almost like a community consultation process where you actually ask questions, provide feedback, positive and negative, and and navigate all of that, and then try to discern something and, and articulate it into a document that then goes back to the elder to actually review and understand and check. So the process is, it's very inclusive and it takes a bit of time. And the, the land council is also involved with that in that in different layers. But understanding that the process is first to ask, not to tell. I, I think that's probably a big one. A lot of people come in and say, well, we're going to do something here. This is what we want to do. Can you give us the, the tick on it? And that's not the approach. Does the land council introduce you to the elders? How do you reach out to the elders? Usually you can approach the land council to do that, but you can also, they'll often have a reference for who the the elders are. And the elders are actually quite proactive in the development community. They're actually there. They're already being engaged at the state government level. We're working across um, some of the big sites with the koala corridors and, and that habitat protection. And the elders have been across all those development sites for quite a while, understanding what's happening. So it's actually happening at a quite a high level and then you come into the individual sites and you're actually going back to the elder that's already been engaged in that process. But certainly going to the land council and inquiring, who do I need to speak to? But specifically asking to also speak to the elder. It's a really important thing because I do know that elders really like to be asked first. It's their land, they're the custodian, and then the land council is there to kind of administer and oversee. And they have a really important role in the process, but um, starting with that spiritual connection and that with country starts with the elder. Thank you so much for explaining that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, as you said, it's, it's very hard to find the process laid out for you step by step in any of the documents that, that I've read. Yeah, they're, they're ac- I actually don't think there is. I, I haven't come across it. We Could have, be an opportunity for you, Dean. Yeah, well, we have, <laughs> maybe it is. We have actually just sort of written a document to outline that in, in a proposal and it's a, an engagement process that will engage with the entire community, which is actually a really strong Indigenous community in that area. Um, and it's about placemaking, going back to that landscape architectural principle, but it's also about What's the steps? Like, how do we do this? Like, is this a one-step process or a 10-step process? And that's what we've actually walked them through. And I guess on the nature of the project, is, is it a, a process that you see followed for all projects? Or is it a certain scale of project? The philosophy is that you should actually bring designing with country into all projects. All projects, okay. The scale of it varies. And so a greenfield site is obviously, or you know, it's a complete rezoning. That's a, a big scale project, mm. but you can actually sort of bring it right down into the individual project. And I suspect what will happen in the future is you might have a, um, a greenfield site rezoned and you've got different zoning areas that might have an overarching document that comes with them about designing with country within that space and what that might mean. That hasn't happened yet, but that's kind of where I think it will go. Mm. Because how do you um, bring in designing with country to a light industrial zoning and you're putting up a factory unit? I, I think there is a way to do it. I suspect it will be led by landscape architects and, and urban designers. Oh, great. Well, I might bring our podcast to a close. It has been so great to be able to sit down and talk with you today and to get your insights. 
You're a passionate designer and I, I love that about you and it certainly comes through in your work and um, yeah, I'm keen to keep an eye on your projects and to follow the work that you keep doing. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time. Yeah, I could I could obviously keep talking all day. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that about you though. <laughs> I look forward to having you back on and uh, seeing where the landscape lands in, in, a, in a few more months' time. Yeah, lovely. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks, Dean. Ta. During the year, we'll continue to invite guests to speak on a variety of topics. If you have a topic that you would like to hear, please send it through to me via the Urban Talk website or you can email me directly at belinda at urbantalk.com.au. For updates on Urban Talk, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. My name is Belinda Barnett and thank you for listening to the Urban Talk podcast. Urban Talk.